want to talk about sort of two basic Buddhist concepts uh, and how San understand them. One is sila, the keeping of precepts. Ideally, there's a trio. Uh, dana, the practice of generosity, serves as a foundation for sila. Precept keeping, which is the practice of morality, which serves as the foundation for meditation and wisdom. And the sila, or precept keeping, is just normally translated as morality. And the other term is anatta, which I don't know if people in popular culture are used to this one. But it, it's the idea that there is no self. And it's, this is how it's almost always translated. When I first started writing about how Sean understood these terms, I was accused of presenting my people, the Sean of northwestern Thailand, as bad Buddhists. So what I want to first do is provide some background information on my primary research community. And you'll see, although I'm doing stuff on religion, it's hard for me not to talk about farming. And then talk about how Sean understand precept keeping and, and also the, the concept that's normally translated as no self, anatta. And then using that discussion as a base, I want to talk about um, how understanding these terms as Shandu adds to our understanding of Theravada Buddhism. So let me first talk about my, res my, my research community. I've, uh, I've been doing research in Tongmak San, which is a village in northwestern Thailand since the summer of 1977. I keep going back. Um, uh, so I have to change topics to keep going back and doing new research. The community was established sometime in the early 20th century. The initial settlers were looking for land to make new irrigated fields, and most came from a larger community three kilometers to the south. Two other groups settled into the community. A cluster of people came from the Shan state to the west. This is very, in your visual map, it's very, very close to the Burma border, okay? Uh, on the western part of Thailand, most Shan live in the Shan state in Burma, but the ones I'm talking about live in Thailand and have been there, like I've been saying. The community since the earliest 20th century, Shan have been in what is now Mehongsan province since the early to mid 19th century. Um, when Mehongsan was incorporated into Thailand, Shan living there became Thai citizens and received Thai identification papers. So they differ from the upland groups, the people you might know about as hill tribes, the really colorful ones. Um, and they also differ from the more recent refugees or immigrants from Burma who are not Thai citizens. So this makes a difference in how, how they can deal with the world. Mehongsan is administered the same way as other provinces within Thailand. So its administrative structure it fits the Thai model. It is divided into districts, sub-districts, and villages. The Ministry of Interior appoints the provincial governor and the district officer, and the district officers, while village headmen are elected, and some district headmen, the sub-district headmen is elected among the village headmen. Tomaksan is, then is in the capital district in the Hoipa sub-district. Hoipa is a larger community to the south of Tomaksan that was the home of most of the initial settlers of, of Tomaksan. In 1977, when I first came to Tongmaksan, uh, it was a small community of 35 households. I was lucky I could tag after my professor who was doing research there, so I got a bit of apprenticeship in fieldwork. 
The road from Ehongsan was mostly unpaved. There was no electricity or running water. No motor vehicles were based in the community, although minibuses came from the village to the north, would come through, or minibuses from the village to the south would come up north. Uh, people very rarely traveled to Mehongsan town, the, the provincial capital about 25 kilometers away. Uh, although the government mandated six years of elementary education, the school only went through the fourth grade. There were two small stores that supplied cooking oil, kerosene, tin fish, candies, everything you need, uh, sort of. Most people were farmers. I can't talk about this without talking about farming. Uh, growing irrigated rice in their lowland fields and, if they needed more rice, making swiddens on the mountainsides. Irrigated fields were plowed and harrowed with water buffalo. For large tasks such as transplanting, weeding, and harvesting, people used exchange labor. Everyone made fields. No one had to rely on wage labor. People grew sesame, soybeans, and garlic as cash crops. Sesame was grown in hill fields, planted before hill rice, and harvested a few weeks before the rice was harvested. It was milled into oil locally and then sold. It's a really high-value, low-volume commodity, sesame oil, so it was a great cash crop. Uh, soybeans and garlic were grown in drain irrigated fields during the cold season. Only one household, the school teachers, didn't farm at all. There was a temple in the, in, in the community. In 1977, they were in the process of building a new one. The sub-district abbot in the, temp, in the village to the north uh, in Napajat, usually sent a monk to reside in the temple during the rainy season retreat. This is a three-month period when rice is going. Monks are supposed to be in temples. They're not supposed to wander around a lot. It's also sort of a period of intensified religious practice, uh, both for the monks and the lay people. There are no weddings during this period, uh, no big festivals, things like that. During the rest of the year, there were no monks at the temple, for household ceremonies, funerals, village festivals, and so on, people had to invite uh, monks from the village to the south of Hoipa or from Napajat to the north. In the recent past, there had been a resident novice. Novices are not, don't receive full ordination. They keep 10 precepts. A monk keeps 227. The rules are a little bit more lax. Um, while I was doing dissertation research in 1979-81, the temple had a resident monk was a former policeman who had killed a man and retired to the monkhood. Monks would come and go, but there was no permanent abbot. More recently, the influx of people from the Shan State also included monks, and Tomaksan had an abbot from the Shan State until about 2009. Nowadays, uh, there are more than 100 households, uh, a combination of nat natural growth and an influx of Shan from the Shan State. The road to Tomaksan is paved. Most households own a motorcycle. And there are a handful of pickup trucks and two minibuses. There's running water, electricity, cell phone tower. Most people have cell phones. And those with computers can connect to the internet via an air card and the cell tower. This is, was news to me when I was there in 2010. The school has closed, though, because there are not enough children to fill the classes. During the late 1970s, couples started using birth control and spacing their children. Some parents got tired of waiting for enough children to open a first grade class. So they sent their children to school in Mehongsan town, which is about, like I said, 25 kilometers away. School kids going to school in town get on the minibus about 6 a.m. and come back about 6 p.m. It's actually very long days for them. 
Now those who can, can afford the extra costs send their children to school in town. The transportation costs, the children need more pocket money. Uh, school teachers in town want their students to buy particular supplies and so on. Those who can't afford this or choose not to send their children to the school in Hoipa, three kilometers to the south. There's subsidized transportation and fewer expenses. The farming system has contracted a little as people can no longer make Sweden hill fields for sesame or hill rice, and garlic now is a predominant cash crop. Plowing and harrowing are done with walking tractors. The water buffaloes have all been sold. Farming requires cash to buy fuel for the tractors, fertilizers, herbicides, insecticides. Many households hire labor for agricultural work. People are available to hire because households without irrigated fields can no longer make hill fields. And the incomers from the Shan State do not have access to any fields at all. The economic opportunities have expanded for people. As people from Tomaksan get high school and college diplomas, this is something I never imagined happening, not when I was there in 79-81. In the relatively recent past, young adult girls would get jobs at shops in Mehongsan town, while young adult boys, being more adventurous, uh, might venture further away and get jobs in Bangkok. Most of these would eventually return to Tongmaksan and take up farming. Now, another, now a number of Tongmaksan residents hold salaried and wage positions, working as teachers or in the sub-district office or as members of road and construction crews. Tongmaksan has another new temple now. It's fourth in its history, built where the school had been. The school had been built on the site of the original temple. The abbot from Shan State had gotten ill and stopped being a monk. For a while, there were no monks in the temple again. In 2010, three Tongmaksan men ordained when Wat Damagai held its first ordination in Mehongsan time. Wat Damagai is a really interesting group. I can talk about it more if people want later. Um, Tongmaksan was the Mehongsan center for Damagai's ordination during the rainy season retreat uh, in 2010, and there were 50 or more monks staying in the temple. This ordination was really attractive to to people because the temple paid all the costs. So men who hadn't had a chance to be ordained kind of left at it. Um, I think that was true for the three men from my community who initially ordained. Um, in 2000, at the end of the rainy season retreat in 2010, only two Tomaksan men remained as monks at the temple. In 2011, I was told, Tomaksan invited a disciple of, a of the charismatic monk Kruba Bunchum, three died at the temple for that, the rainy season retreat. And if I, I haven't heard from my community lately, people call me on cell phones, um, but I believe that monk is still there. Uh, meanwhile, the people hold festivals to raise money to build an ordination hall. Uh, that, this was begun with money donated by Wat Damagai people. When the ordination hall was finished, Tomaksan's temple will be complete. It'll have the temple itself, the building, a jong, uh, a chedi, and a sim, or ordination hall. Kruba Bunchum selected the chedi site and began its construction. The chedi was finished about the time the temple was finished. Okay. I can't talk about this without doing farming and economics. And it sort of makes a good contextual sense. What I want to do is switch topics a little bit and move on to the issue of precept keeping and how it's been understood as a practice of morality. 
And it was looking at tattoos that led me down this path. So precept keeping, as we all learn when we first find out about Buddhism, is the practice of morality. Lay people should keep five precepts to refrain from killing, stealing, improper sexual behavior, lying, and intoxication. I can count them up. Introductory texts that explain precept keeping are clear that these are not the same as Christian commandments. Um, Precepts are ideals. Good people endeavor to keep them, but given the demands of daily life, it is simply not possible. Christian missionaries, seeing precepts as commandments, talk about Buddhism as a pessimistic religion and that people cannot avoid sinning. This is a fine example of using an inappropriate framework to analyze behavior or to understand what's going on. At least in the context where I do research, people who can keep precepts are considered outstanding. Uh, On holy days, people may take a vow to keep these five precepts for the day. Indeed, the Shan term for the regular calendrical holy days is Wan Sin, or precept day, and these fall on the full dark and half-moon days of the lunar months. So I began with this understanding of what precept-keeping meant. I'm not, I wasn't a scholar of things Buddhist. I still can't read Pali and Sanskrit. This is true confessions. Like many anthropologists, my understanding of Buddhism was a basic one derived from introductory texts, uh, including such classics as Rahula's What the Buddha Taught and more relevant to Thai stuff, Wells's Thai Buddhism. Rahula's text also reflects his modernist understandings of what Buddhism is and how it should be understood. Well, Wells is an account of Thai Buddhism for fellow missionaries. Nonetheless, they both provide normative understandings of Buddhism. Basic Buddhist terms are explained and linked into a larger web of Buddhist thought and philosophy. In 1984-85, I was doing research in Maksampay, the second community where I've done research. I was doing research on religion and worldview. I'd started with farming and had this thought, oh yeah, there's, there's more to life than rice. Um, why are people growing rice? What do they use rice for? Uh, what, how does it fit into what else they're doing? So in Maksampay, it was a bigger community. It had more monks in its temple. It had a traditional doctor, which my community didn't have. Um, I spent a fair amount of time at the house of the traditional doctor, Sarah Lu, Sarah's teacher, and then Lu is his name. During the cold season in 1984, he was making medicine for tattooing. So I asked him about his tattoos and tattooing in general. This is what we do as anthropologists, right? Um, he talked about the ways, uh, the ways, how to make different tattooing medicines and some of the ingredients he used. The blue-black tattoos, are the color comes from soot. The red ones, it kind of fade away. The colors come from uh, red rocks. He made his own black color. He bought the red from traders. That's the base. You do a lot of other stuff to the tattooing medicine. You make it for particular tattoos. You chant verses over it, all sorts of things to sort of power it up. Um, I didn't learn how to do any of those, though. Uh, I learned about different kinds of tattoos and that there were three general kinds. All three were for protection, but they each worked differently. One kind made the tattooed person attractive to both humans and spirits, and this attractiveness prevented humans and spirits from harming the bearer. Uh, 
Attractiveness tattoos actually are often used to prevent and cure illnesses, partly because if you're attractive to spirits, spirits won't make you sick, and it's very much a form of protection then. The second kind of tattoo created a protective barrier around the, the bearer that prevented anything harmful from entering the body. The third kind made speech both powerful and seductive, and I think of them as silver-tongued devil tattoos, and I wish I'd gotten some. Um, I settled for the attractiveness tattoos. Um, these, the silver-tongued devil tattoos, by making you good with speech, can also be seen as a form of protection and helping you talk your way out of problems. Mm. You know, uh, they're really fun. All of these tattoos exist in varying strengths. The weaker barrier, uh, crea barrier-creating tattoos keep insects from biting, while the weaker silver-tongued speech ones simply help to make one's words convincing. The more powerful ones are another story. Very strong speech tattoos makes a person wor person's words commanding and intimid intimidating, while the powerful barrier tattoos keep bullets from entering and knives from cutting the bearer's body. These more powerful forms require that the person keep receiving the tattoo promise to keep one precept at all times. And it's here that my understanding of precept keeping as morality hit the wall. Drawing on what I thought I knew, I assumed that the requirement to keep a precept would add a dimension of morality to tattoos that could be used to achieve immoral ends. This just, given what, what I assumed precepts were about, this just made sense to me. When I was working on my, out my analysis of tattoos, I gave a presentation on them to the informal Northern Thai group in Chiang Mai, and I argued that the need to keep a precept was to force the person with a tattoo to behave morally. Um, oh, well. Uh, when, I was, when I was back in Mak Sampei, I continued to explore tattoos with Sara Lu. To this day, I am not sure why I continued to poke at this issue. There must have been something in my mind about the idea of precept-keeping, morality, and, tattoo, and, and tattooing. One day, I, one day I asked Sarah Lou if an evil man was getting a tattoo, okay? And an equally evil tattooing doctor, would the man getting the tattoo have to keep a precept? I assumed that the precept-keeping had to do with morality I figured the answer would be no, this wasn't necessary. But I asked it anyway, and Sara Lu replied, regardless, the man would keep getting the tattoo would have to keep a precept. I rephrased my question, figuring that my clumsy use of the language had obscured it. But the answer was the same. Regardless, regardless of the intentions of the person getting the tattoo and the morality or lack of morality of the tattooer, the person had had to promise to keep a precept. I was reluctant to let go my assumption about precept keeping as morality. And I pestered Sarah Lou about this a number of times. Our informants get kind of tired of us, I think. Um, but the answer never changed. The disconnect between precept keeping and morality became clearer when I learned that the precept people agreed to keep was the third one, to refrain from improper sexual behavior. And this is locally under, understood to mean refraining from adultery. Men, and most people getting tattooed are men, do not want to keep the fifth precept to refrain from intoxication, since men do drink, and um, maintaining control while drunk is a sign of a man's power. 
if a man is getting the stronger closing off tattoos because he is a soldier, there was fighting in the Shan state that would come over the border and things like that. Um, the first precept about refraining from killing just wouldn't work, it'd be counterproductive. Even if a man isn't a soldier, men hunt and fish, and either activity breaks the first precept. Refraining from lying, the fourth precept, is, not, is also not possible, given the need for social white lies in day-to-day -day life. Uh, by promising to refrain from adultery, keeping the third precept, a tattooed person can, if he chooses, engage in a life of crime. Any of these other of the other precepts would mean life as a soldier or as a criminal, it would make that impossible. In spite of my reluctance to abandon my understanding of precept keeping as a practice of morality, I could not square this understanding with how precept keeping was used with tattoos. A person getting a powerful tattoo must keep a precept. There's no way around it. The precept serves to keep the tattoo charged. If the person fails to keep that precept, the tattoo loses its power. Clearly, there is some connection between precepts, perhaps better understood as a form of restraint and power. So I want to talk about precept keeping a little bit more. Uh, men with powerful tattoos need to keep one precept in order for their tattoos to work. Um, other people also keep precepts, although they usually keep more than one. Indeed, people can be categorized by the number of precepts they keep. Everyday people try to keep five on holy days. Elders keep eight on holy days and five the rest. Nuns, in the loose sense of the word, keep eight precepts all the time. Novices, ten. Monks, 227. And uh, fully ordained women kept 311. Regularly keeping eight or more precepts creates a sharp divide between householders and others. Those who only, who only occasionally keep eight or fewer live in households, have families, engage in productive work, and are free to dress in whatever ways they find pleasing and can afford. Those who regularly keep eight or more live in the temple compound. Their behavior and attire are restricted by the precepts they keep. So I want to talk a little bit about two questions about precepts and precept keepers. First, if one precept is enough to power up a tattoo, what abilities do people who keep more than one precept have? And second, why is there this great divide between people, between occasionally keeping eight precepts or fewer and continuously keeping eight precepts or more? So let me talk about what keeping precepts do, can do for you. Elders are people who, sleep, who keep eight precepts on precept days during the rainy season retreat when they spend the night at the temple. Um, they, they receive, they, on the holy days during this, these three months, they go to the temple, they receive eight precepts, which means they don't eat food after 12 noon and a few other things, and spend the day at the temple. And they talk about it as they really, really hold tightly onto the five precepts, like you're not supposed to pick flowers. Okay and things like that, so they're, because that's killing something. So they talk about it as, they're really, you can imagine, they talk about it as gum, holding it in your fist. Um, the next morning, they receive the, the five precepts that lay, lay people should, should try to keep. The cultural assumption is these elders keep the five precepts all the time. They're no longer actively engaged in farming, 
and they no longer hunt or fish, they don't drink alcohol, and so on. Elders, because they keep five precepts all the time, and eight precepts on days on precept days during the rains retreat, acquire enough power to give blessings that protect their dependents. Because they have this power, it is potentially dangerous to offend them, since if offended, they might withdraw their protection. Consequently, at New Year's and at the end of, end of the rains retreat, people go from house to house to pay respect and ask for forgiveness from the elders. They present the elders with a small offering, and the elders in return chant a blessing. Um, Yuli Ginwan is actually the most minimal blessing in one I can remember. It means uh, requests that the receiver stay well, Yuli, and healthy, or literally have food taste good, Ginwan. Um, there are many different versions of these blessings. An elder might chant a long one or a shorter one. They request many different kinds of things. Uh, I want to talk so that you have the power to give blessings. You can protect people, and protection is a theme we'll come, I'll come back to. Um, so why the separation between people who keep lots all the time and people who only keep some? People who regularly keep eight or more precepts are no longer householders. Monks, novices, and nuns live in uh, temple compounds. They don't farm. They don't engage in productive activities. The normal, oh, okay. Uh, people bring them food. Normally, ideally, they go on alms rounds. In my area, they don't. People bring food to the temple. Um, monks, novices, and nuns, when there are some, form a separate community residing with the, in the temple compound. They rarely leave the temple grounds to interact with lay people, except for morning alms rounds, which rarely occur, or when they're formally invited to perform a ceremony. Visually, they're quite different from lay people, and so on and so on. Monks, and to a lesser degree, novices are addressed using a special honorific vocabulary. Everyday people, ginkao, that is to say, eat rice. Monks, sumsam, uh, that is to consume monk foods. Those who continuously keep eight or more precepts become another sort of person. Because of the number of precepts they keep, they are seen as quite powerful beings. While monks, like parents or grandparents, are usually benevolent, it is wise to be mindful of their power. As with lay elders, people go to the temple at New Year's and at the end of the rains retreat and ask for forgiveness and pay respect to the monks in their local temples. People also travel to nearby communities to ask for forgiveness and pay respect to the abbot of these temples local elders, and also local government officials. Temple services begin and end with the asking for forgiveness from the monks for any misdeeds, indeed thought or, yeah, deed, word, or thought, and monks always chant a blessing in return. People ask for forgiveness and pay respect, and the person so requested grants them this forgiveness and gives them the blessing. The blessings heal, blessing heals any breach in the relationship and places the people receiving the blessing within the blesser's sphere of care and protection. This is the basic structure for paying respect and asking for forgiveness. Minimally, keeping eight or more precepts, at least some of the time, gives people enough power to give effective blessings. And these blessings then protect the receivers from illness and harm. Uh, so the original puzzle about precept keeping came from people getting tattoos 
having to keep a tattoo at all times, regardless of how they chose to use their tattoos. Precept as a practice of morality just doesn't work very well here. With elders and people who continuously keep eight or more precepts, precept keeping as a practice of morality makes more sense, but doesn't illuminate why they can give blessings and why these blessings serve to protect those who receive them. Power comes from the practice of restraint. Restraint, refraining from what people normally do, automatically confers power, regardless of the intentions of the person practicing restraint. They accumulate power. This is just a fact of the universe for Sean. The more precepts kept and the longer they have been kept, the more powerful the person. Tattoos, amulets, and blessings from those who, keep precept, who have kept precepts for a long time are stronger and more valued. So the power that comes from keeping precepts actually separates people. One of the ways of dealing with the power differences is just to limit interaction. Um, and this is also true of interactions with government officials. So clearly there's more to power than just precept keeping, and I'll come back to that. So the difference in power and the need to separate those with more power from those with less is at least one explanation for why monks, novices, and nuns reside in temple compounds. This isn't to play down the importance of the separation for the development of their Buddhist practices and understanding. Um, you just simply don't mix people with different amounts of power. Lay elders and monks are more likely to be benevolent than locally powerful people but other powerful officials or, or, or beings with whom one does not have a relationship are always potentially dangerous. Precept keeping then is not simply the practice of morality. By keeping precepts, one acquires power that is, like the tattoos, morally neutral. Um, how one uses one ta ta one's tattoos or what one does with this power uh, depends on the individual. I'm gonna come back and talk about the nature of power and its place in Sean worldview but I want to talk a little bit briefly about the meaning of anatta and how it's understood where I am. Because it classically, if you've sat through an intro to religions class, you've learned anything about Buddhism, it's always translated as no self. Um, so dukkha or suffering, anicca or impermanence, and anatta are three interconnected Pali terms. The term dukkha is actually part of everyday Shan vocabulary. When monks use it in sermons, they sometimes translate it into shan as hardship and suffering, kanjao, yapjao. Anichang, impermanence, is translated as instability and unfixedness, amman, amme. Because nothing is fixed and unchanging, and because people are attached to objects and persons, these change and cause suffering. Anatta, however, is translated as not being able to control or have authority over. And the phrase here is am upung lai, which is, has to do with governing in some ways. While Shan translations and understandings of dukkha and anicca fit the normative Buddhist definitions, anatta as lack of control does not. And this is where I really got in trouble uh, for characterizing my guys as bad Buddhists. Um, in, in sermons, monk usually, monks usually explain anatta in terms of people's inability to control their of own body. It's wrong to call the body ours. So I want to quote from three different funeral-related sermons given by different monks. 
just so that this isn't just my imagination. I mean, it could be. Um, I could be making up the quotes too, but we don't need to go down that path, right? Um, uh, there are three different monks. Two of these are from Mehongsan. One of them is from Siba in the Shan state. And these are kind of typical topics for funeral sermons, by the way, uh, talking about death, impermanence, and so on. Um, and the explanations are similar regardless of where the monks are from, which suggests that there's a relatively broad, that this concept of anatta as not being in charge of, not being able to control, is relatively widespread. So this is from a one funeral-related sermon um, where the monk said, the body is uh, unstable. Our body does not belong to us. We cannot control it. It is like this in the world. Flowers, fruit trees, fruit, trees, and bamboo are all the same. All these things are not able to remain unchanged through time. They are unstable. unstable. I wish I had my... Um, transcriptions of these sermons here and I would have back checked what words were used but I don't I'm assuming he was talking about uh, impermanence in Nichan that which we are unable to control which is a reference to anatta is suffering which we are unable to control if you cannot control it it is impermanent it is impermanent nothing stays fixed as if it were noon all kinds of things which have a spirit or a soul and all things which do not when their time comes it happens that they are born not perhaps the most coherent fragment of a sermon, but here's another one, actually, another funeral sermon for the same old man. Uh, and the monk said, if this body is really ours, and we say, sight, do not grow dim, then our sight will really not grow dim. I can testify that it, that doesn't work. Um, if we say, teeth do not fall out, they do not fall out. The, the the way these are expressed brings the yeah, right response, right? We brush two or three times a day and the teeth still fall out. We say ears do not go deaf and they do not go deaf. They really listen to our words. If the body is truly ours, then why does it not, why does it not listen to our words? Because it's not truly ours. We just force it to belong to us. It's ours by force. And here's the third sermon um, this is from the monk from Siba. It only a fragment from the sermon. It only requires wisdom for this way. Wisdom that is the foundation for the others. That wisdom will bring an awareness of what? That wisdom will bring an awareness of the knowledge of anatta. When we have knowledge of anatta, the Lord Buddha preached about the knowledge of this anatta because all living beings are only anatta. Anatta is that which I myself, the bodies of spirits, the bodies of people, the bodies of animals, the bodies of Brahma spirits truly have. We think that they are fixed because we have them like this. The Lord Buddha preached this is anatta. Anatta, in our Shan words, mean that it means it cannot be controlled. It's not controllable. Because it cannot be controlled, and so it can be destroyed. From this comes impermanence. Because of this, we must accept sickness and destruction. Difficulty and um, hardship comes, this is dukkha. So if we think clearly, truly we can see that from anatta comes dukkha, that is suffering, comes anichan, impermanence, comes dukkha. When we see the nature of anatta, we also see anicca, impermanence, and dukkha, suffering, and the nature of anatta. We see them all together because we are not in control. 
We only see what is in front of our eyes. Lay people, this is what the Lord Buddha preached, and it is really the truth. It means, in Shan words, we call this anatta, not in charge of, not controllable. It cannot be like that because we are not in charge. If we were in control, then the monk, this was a funeral sermon for a monk, uh, Duwaling, who died, would not have had to die. So you can see from these excerpts of sermons, there's kind of nice interconnection between control or the reality of our lack of control, uh, which causes change that is impermanent and then causes suffering. Okay. So now there are two kind of odd pieces here, anomalous understandings of Buddhist concepts, at least based on normative understandings of uh, sila and anatta. And Shan, I admit, when they admit, entered the academic literature, were characterized as Buddhists, but their Buddhism was seen as uh, decidedly heretical. Uh, Steve Collins in his Selfless Persons suggests that anatta's meaning is more complex than the normative definition of not than the normative definition as non-self suggests. Indeed, lack of control over one's body is a possible translation for this term. Nonetheless, knowing that Shan understanding of anatta is not heretical in this broader sense doesn't really help us understand why anatta as lack of control makes sense in the Shan construction of the universe. Uh, nor does it shed any light on why precept keeping seen as a practice of constraint, restraint confers power. Precept keeping as a practice of restraint confers power. Okay, blah, blah. So what I want to do now is turn and look a little bit at Sean worldview, the way power works, the way it comes from, where it comes from, and how it connects back to precept keeping and this issue of uh, anatta as lack of control and the importance of control. So practicing restraint, keeping precepts, is indeed a surefire way to accumulate power. But one can also rely on powerful others, either directly by becoming their followers or dependents, or by relying on amulets and tattoos that powerful others have made. But power doesn't come simply from, or only from the practice of restraint, or relying on those who practice restraint. It simply exists in the universe. It's sort of like a natural force in the Shan universe, it is a natural force. Um, it's, it's there. It's rather unevenly distributed. It is morally neutral. Uh, some people have more power than others. Uh, people in Tomatsan know this experientially. They're farmers. In the sc- broad scope of things, they don't have a lot of power. Other people have more wealth. Lives are more comfortable. Uh, they live in air conditioning. You, know, you can control your climate. Outside the human realm, there are spirits, some of whom are more powerful than humans, some less. These spirits include spirit owners of the land, of productive fields, of the temple compounds, as well as spirits of the dead, especially those who die bad deaths, uh, that's being dying in childbirth, dying from an accident, dying from a gunshot wound, and a range of nature spirits who may be more or less malevolent. Um, Some of them are... Other powerful spirits are more potentially benevolent. Like powerful human beings, they can be offended and inflict harm. But if one cultivates a relationship with them through respect and offerings, they protect and take care of their followers. And this is sort of a broad paradigm of Sean's social life um, and in the universe. 
One consequence of the, this uneven distribution of power and powerful beings is that the universe is, in fact, a dangerous place. The danger is real, but there are many ways to successfully deal with it. One is by relying on the protection of more powerful others. Ideally, then, powerful others protect, nurture, and provide for their dependents. And you can see this imagery showing up in how people think about good people. Uh, and this is partly from a sermon describing what good people are. A good person is like a broad shade tree. You can imagine one of the big leafy trees outside. The places for birds to live. It's shady underneath. It provides a cool, safe place for people to stay. Um, a bad person, on the other hand, is sort of like a stick tree. No leaves, no shelter, no place for people to be. Uh, no way to take care of any others. Um, the imagery of the tree shading being shading being suggests that a good person uses his power to shade and thus protect his or her followers. And Sarah Lewin, talking about his ability to cure, said he drew on the power of the lineage of his teachers and of the Buddhas, and that this power created a protective sphere around him and the person he was treating. So I want to talk a little bit about one of the ways people deal with the dangerous universe is actually to create bounded protected spaces for people to be in. Um, Tattoos that create protective barriers are just one example of these kinds of things. Um, They prevent bad things, knives, bullets, etc. Although if you have too many of them, they prevent good things from entering too. So they're said to be unlucky. Uh, In the Thai traditions, you often see people with white strings tied around their wrists. In other traditions, it's really... Thai traditions, it's related to calling the soul. Shan don't do this very much, um, but they they tend to do it for little children. Elders do this. It's partly the elders give a blessing when they do this, and the blessing then acts to protect the small child from illness, from diseases, by putting a protective barrier around them. These protective barriers are powered by precepts, either kept by the tattooed person or the elder. There's an annual village ceremony that chases out malign influence. Uh, Monks are chanting in a tower. There's all sorts of stuff underneath. The monks chant. They uh, bless these objects. They're empowered by the chanting. You take the stuff home. There's sand you sprinkle in your compound. There's rice you sprinkle in your house. There's white string and a spirit shield that you tie around your house. Um, spirit shields about the size of my hand. Um, this is creating a, a barrier around your household. Keep the good sprinkling the stuff inside it chases anything bad away, and then you put the protective barrier up, and that's to keep um, bad things out. And again, this relies on the power of uh, precept keepers to fire to power them up. You also end up with a series of sort of protected bounded spaces where there's a power differential between what happens inside and what's outside. So when the tattooing doctor was tattooing, making really powerful tattoos, he created a special space in his house in front of the Buddha altar that was fenced in. Okay, And he did the powerful tattooing inside there made a boundary between what he was doing and where he was. Uh, one of the monks from the Moksampei Temple 
uh, went to a cave in the area and he saw what he found what he saw was a, fo a footprint of a Buddha or anyway a big spirit and he carefully put a little fence around the area and marking off a more powerful space from a less powerful space. When lay readers read very powerful books in a house, they'll do the same thing. The area where they're reading will be marked off as a separate space. Um, temples, by the way, are another powerful marked off space. They're bounded by a, a wall. Um, the old temple sites are not good places to build houses. There's a really inappropriate differential of power here. Monks, because they chant, and they, what they chant are the words of the Buddha, and the Buddha in some ways is the epitome of a powerful, uh, powerful being. Uh, monk, the Buddha practiced restraint much beyond what people could realistically aspire to. The monks chant the words of the Buddha because the, their words of the Buddha, they have power inherent in themselves. They're also powered by the monks chanting. Um, it becomes embedded in the soil. Um, and again, this power difference makes the temple area a different space, and it makes people who keep this many precepts quite different and, in a way, separate. So you want to... My sister likes to quote a Robert Graves novel where he talks about smokes don't mix. Uh, I haven't read the book. She says everybody she gives it to who reads it never talks to her again. Um, <laughs> nonetheless, smokes don't mix. You know, the idea of different kinds of smokes, whether you do a pipe or a cigar or whatever. That sense fits, I think, fits this rather well. You just don't mix these things. Okay? Um, power protects people from the consequences of their actions, at least in the short run. Powerful people do not need to be concerned about what others think of them. They can behave more or less as they choose and not suffer any immediate consequences. I was used to thinking about power as an active force. I'm an American, right? We're kind of all aggressive. And, uh, that is the ability to do things, right? It took me a while to work my mind around to, to seeing just how powerful protection is. Power has, has protection, has kind of the whiff of the dark side about it, right? One thinks of protection rackets, of people being able to flout both laws and social expectations. At the worst, protection makes thugs. Uh, the Thai archetype is uh, called a naklang, translated out as a rogue racketeer. Uh, naklang are powerful, both personally and through relying on powerful amulets and tattoos. They're really good friends to have, as long as one maintains a good relationship with them and rather bad enemies. The light side counterpart of this power protection is uh, Pumi Boon, people with merit. In the academic literature, they're often referred to as holy men. They're rather charismatic leaders. They're not necessarily monks, but they are charismatic leaders. And they're, they've often led rebellions. Power allows one to control the world around them to a greater or lesser extent. So I'm weaving back to the issue of anatta as not being in control of and bounded space and protected internal territories. Very powerful beings, ones in heavens, in the heavens, for instance, can live extremely long lives in exceptionally stable environments. Human beings, especially Shan farmers, are less able to ward off change and its negative consequences. 
Young adult men test their power and abilities to main control, maintain control while drinking. Adult men and women demonstrate their power to protect and take care of their dependents uh, through their success in farming, their ability to sponsor life cycle ceremonies, make contributions to village uh, festivals. You know, this is actually well living within the social boundaries, right? Older men and women become temple sleepers and acquire the ability to give blessings. And ideally, in old age, in my area, you want to be at home. You want to be surrounded by your children and grandchildren. There's not a tradition of older men ordaining as monks. Um, as elders begin to fail, physically or mentally, they're no longer capable of warding off change and are no longer in control. They no longer sleep at the temple, nor are they asked to empower strings that are tied around their grandchildren's wrists. The community at large does not come to pay respect and ask for forgiveness from them, although close family members do continue to do so. This awareness of life cycle adds a certain poignancy to the explanations of anatta as not being able to control one's body as it ages. In the short run, power can ward off the consequences of one's behavior, control what is happening, and limit the impact of change. Ultimately, ultimately, though, this becomes impossible. And so let me go back to a couple of funeral sermons because they say things so eloquently sometimes. Uh, one man, one monk said, we people, is there any one of us who can avoid old age, sickness, and death? Who can escape this? Not even Lord um, Mokalan with his enormous power. How much power did he have? There's a land under the surface, 84,000 yojanas deep. If he had the idea to use his power and take the top and make it the bottom and the bottom the top, he could do this. Even, st even he still had to reach Parinibban. Lord Mukulan still had to pass away. And from a second sermon, this is where I got the title of my monograph. Because we are the kind of, that is born when we have birth, there is old age suffering. Because we have birth, it causes old age, which sticks in the heart. When sickness is born, then marana, which means death, comes along with it. When there is sickness, sickness is the cause and death is the result. These things follow one another. Since it happens like this, what can we people do? There's no one who can compete against the world. And again, this is why anatta is an inability to control resonates so well because a lot of what's going on is creating to your, the best of your ability controlling places, safe spaces, protected spaces. Um, birth, sickness, old age, and death are part of being in this universe. Spirits, beings in the heavens, humans, microbes, bugs are all born and die and are reborn and die again, almost on ad infinitum. Good actions have good consequences, bad, bad consequences. This is karma, and people in Tomaksan and Mehongsan in general recognize its workings. But karma serves only as the ultimate explanation of one's life. While a life is being lived, there's no way to know what is a consequence of karma or luck or simply power. People make merit through offerings to monks as a way to shore up their quality of life now and in the future. Okay. So I want to pull back a little bit and say, talk, say, well, what does ask, what does this tell us about Theravada Buddhism and how we should go about understanding it? Anthropologists are often faced with the problem of in interpreting 
how people understand Buddhism, especially when their interpretation does not fit with the normative framework. Spiro, in his masterful discussion of Buddhism in Burma, raises the question of how Burmese understand basic Buddhist concepts. In his Buddhism and Society, a Great Tradition and its Burmese vicissitudes, Spiro suggests, uh, Spiro explores, and one of the concepts, concepts Spiro explores is the term anatta, which he assumes means no self. Spiro suggests that most Burmese do not understand anatta's correct meaning and that they conflate it with anicca, impermanence. And this is a quote from Spiro. Here is the comment of the most sophisticated Buddhist in the village. Everything changes from moment to moment. As a human being, I do not wish to die, to be blind, to get old, and so on. But I must. I have no power to prevent them. This is anatta. Now, the, this Burmese understanding of anatta is, in fact, rather similar to the Shan understanding and its relationship, the relationship between inability to control and stop change. Uh, and then change in suffering. Spiro uses this and other Burmese interpretations to argue that doctrinal aspects of Buddhism are psychologically inaccessible for most Buddhists. This is a more sophisticated argument than simply asserting that local people are bad Buddhists or that they fail to understand Buddhism. Nonetheless, local practices are still compared to an idealized doctrinal view of Buddhism. While Spiro's analysis may take us closer to the psychological issues entangled within the Buddhist doctrines, it doesn't take us any further towards understanding the way Bur Burmese interpret and understand their world. Anthropological fieldwork, ethnography, then becomes the route to explore how people, in fact, do interpret and explain their world. By taking them seriously, we come to both a better understanding of how particular cultures make sense of the world the place of Buddhism within their making sense of the world, and perhaps Buddhism as a lived religion. Topics that appear paradoxical or contradictory from normative, narrow analyses begins to make sense in particular cultural contexts. And this is, I believe, what Shan anthropology, ethnography can tell us about Theravada Buddhism. Precepts as a practice of restraint, which results in the accumulation of power, and anatta as the inability to control, leads us to a broader, more coherent understanding of how these Shan understand and live in the world. This broader vision connects back to a better understanding of Buddhism and how it is woven within people's lives, expectations, and worldviews. Buddhism arose in, in a particular local co cultural context. For it to spread, it has to make sense to the people who become Buddhist. And this is true for Western Buddhists as well, of course. The sense that this Buddhism makes is always a local particular one. It necessarily draws on cultural values, history, and indeed political economic relationships within the communities. It has become embedded. So I hope I've given you some sense of how Shan ethnography can enlighten our understanding of Theravada Buddhism. Thank you.